0: are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Loop Podcast. My name is Zane Ariampour. I'm usually behind the scenes creating content for The Loop Podcast, but I will be your moderator for today's episode. Today's episode is all about the endoscopic brow lift, which was pioneered by Dr. Louis Vasquez during his time here at UAB. I'm especially excited because our hosts today also reign from UAB, so, it's a blazer reunion today for sure. We have Dr. Morgan Martin, co founder and core host of the Loop podcast. We also have a special guest, Dr. Polly Kumla, who is one of the new ACPS Aesthetic Fellows. Welcome, Morgan and Polly.
0: Hey, guys. So, I think everyone knows me that is listening here, but just as a brief reintroduction, I'm Dr. Morgan Martin, and I'm now in my third year of um, independent residency at Emory. So, thanks for um, putting this together, and let's hear from Polly.
2: Thanks, Zane and Morgan, for having me to discuss the endoscopic brow lift procedure. To give a quick introduction about myself, I completed my general surgery residency in Arkansas and then completed my plastic and reconstructive surgery residency at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where endoscopic brow lift was pioneered. I'm now currently doing my aesthetics fellowship at the Aesthetic Center for Plastic Surgery in Houston, Texas. I'm lucky in that I've been able to have different perspectives on how endoscopic brow lift has been performed both at UAB and the Aesthetic Center for Plastic Surgery with such mentors as Dr. Henry Mentz. And so I'm hoping I can share some of those insights today.
1: Thank you guys for those introductions. So we're going to start off today with some background on the role of endoscopy in plastic surgery. The majority of plastic surgery procedures are performed via an open approach. So Morgan, can you tell us about the evolving role of endoscopy in plastic surgery?
0: Sure. So I will start this off. So there are several indications for endoscopy and plastic surgery. So we probably know endoscopy uh, the best for facial surgeries, such as what we're going to talk about today, like an endoscopic brow lift, it can be used also for facelift. It has been uh, used and described for surgeries of the chest, such as breast augmentation, mastopexy, reduction, and mastectomy. Um, of course, for the abdomen as well, um, abdominoplasty. Of course, harvesting of an a mental flap also can be used assisting with a tram or a deep flap. And of course, something that we commonly use in hand surgery. So for carpal tunnel release. So let's talk about the endoscopic brow lift. So today, more than half of brow lifts are done endoscopically with high patient satisfaction rates, despite no differences found between open versus closed brow lifts. And nonetheless, there is an evident trend towards minimally invasive surgery and cosmetic and reconstructive surgery due to several advantages. What are those advantages of endoscopy? So it reduces the length of incision, um, repositioning the incision in a more aesthetically and distant location away from the true operative site. And it also gives you magnification, leading to improved visualization to preserve innervation and control bleeding.
1: That's amazing, Morgan. Plastic surgery is rooted in innovation and technology, and I think that the evolving role of endoscopy across all these domains of plastic surgery is the perfect example of that. As we said previously, the endoscopic brow lift was developed here at UAB. Polly, can you give us some background on how that exactly happened?
2: Yeah, um, I'd love to. So Dr. Vasquez and colleagues actually used fresh cadaver heads to determine the feasibility of endoscopic techniques. Um, applicable to aesthetic surgery of the face, um, including such areas as the forehead, nose, nasal septum, jowls, and neck. They're actually the first group to conduct these cadaver studies on endoscopic um, aesthetic facial surgery and published these findings in PRS in 1994. They found that the elimination of the ear-to-ear coronal incision was an obvious advantage for several reasons, and these included alopecia, paresthesias, hypertrophic scarring, and wound healing problems associated with the ear-to-ear coronal incision. The primary goal uh, and limiting factor was identification of an optical cavity that could be used to access all all of the necessary structures and to accommodate the tools involved. They also found that the endoscopic approach could also accomplish division and weakening of the corrugators, procerus, and frontalis muscles, as well as moderate elevation of the eyebrows. Since then, many other applications um, have been used and adapted and modified using endoscopy, and it's now a common practice and approach in aesthetic plastic surgery.
1: That's amazing, Polly. Thank you for that background. So now we will explore some of the details regarding brow lifts. Morgan, what are some of the indications for brow lift? And then what are some of the indications specifically for endoscopic brow lift?
0: Sure. So first let's talk about brow lift in general. So brow asymmetry, brow ptosis, or so descent of the brow, deep brittids and or furrows traversing the forehead, the glabella and or the nasal radix, heavy or redundant forehead or temporal skin visual impairment. And so what that means really is when you have brow ptosis, you're going to have descent of the brow, and then you're going to have skin um, occluding your visual field. So that's what that means. And then blepharoptosis. So indications for endoscopic brow lift would include a short forehead, six centimeters or less patient preference for improved scar aesthetics or request for a more minimally invasive procedure is also an indication for an endoscopic approach. So, Polly, can you tell us some of the contraindications to brow lift?
2: Sure. So, um, some of the contraindications to brow lift in general, whether open or closed, um, include lagophthalmos, history of dry eye symptoms, or previous blepharoplasty due to the fact that there could be an increased risk of lagophthalmos with that, as well as unrealistic patient expectations. Contraindications to endoscopic brow lift in specific include excessive hairline recession, because the endoscopic brow lift procedure may actually raise the hairline slightly. And then an excessively curved forehead or frontal bossing, which could inhibit the passing of the endoscopic instruments to the periorbita. So now we're going to get into some of the anatomy involved in brow lift. Morgan, um, do you mind telling us about the characteristics and causes of an aging face and some of the key structures that the endoscopic brow lift addresses?
0: Sure. So let's talk about those characteristics of the aging face and the causes. So, first, we can see vertical glabellar lines, and this is caused by the transverse head of the corrugator supercilia muscle or CSM. You can also see oblique glabellar lines caused by the oblique head of these corrugator supercilia muscle, the depressor supercilia muscle, and the medial orbicularis oculi muscle. We also have transverse dorsal skin lines caused by the procerus muscle. We will see lateral eyebrow ptosis caused by gravity, galeal fat pad descent, and instability of the superficial temporal fascia plane. Also uh, due to action of the CSM or the corrugator supracilia muscle, the transverse head, and the orbicularis oculi muscle, the lateral portion. We also can see transverse forehead skin lines. This is caused by the frontalis muscle, as well as, of course, brow ptosis. So now let's talk about structures that require release. So first, the zone of adhesion. This is a six millimeter wide zone medial to the superficial temporal fusion line of the skull where periosteum and galea are fixed to the bone. Next, we have the conjoint tendon. This is the fusion of the galea superficial and deep temporal fascia and periosteum or pericranium within the anterior temporal region of the inferior end of the zone of the adhesion. The conjoint tendon functions like a retaining ligament. And next, we have the arcus marginalis. This is the fusion of the galea and frontal periosteum at the orbital rim, which functions to anchor the brow and act as the peripheral attachment of the orbital septum.
1: That's so interesting, Morgan. Knowledge of these key components to address in this procedure is obviously very important. Are there any anatomical structures that must be avoided and preserved?
0: Sure, yes. Let's talk about those anatomic structures at risk. So first we have the superorbital nerve. So the trunk exits the superior orbit parallel to the medial limbus. Um, This is innervation to the frontoparietal skin, which comes from the deep branch, and the upper eyelid from the superficial branch. Next, we have the supratrochlear nerve. This is one centimeter medial to the supraorbital nerve, and it innervates skin of the midline glabella, medial upper eyelid, and portion of the conjunctiva. Next, we have the temporal branch of the facial nerve. So as the temporal branch courses superiorly to the zygomatic arch, it runs within or along the undersurface of the temporoparietal fascia. This is motor innervation to the musculature of the brow and the superior portion of the orbicularis oculi muscle. So very important. So next, also important to know the sentinel vein. So this large perforating vein in the zygomatico-temporal venous system located approximately one centimeter lateral to the frontozygomatic suture and predictably falls within two millimeters of the temporal branch of the facial nerve. We should also talk about hair follicles. So alopecia is avoidable with incisions placed parallel to hair follicle orientation, tension-free closure of incision lines, and limited cauterization to the undersurface of the hair bearing areas.
1: That's amazing. Thank you for those details, Morgan. Wally, can you tell us about what goes into a preoperative assessment for patients seeking endoscopic brow lift?
2: Sure. So the preoperative assessment is obviously very important. um, And it's important to evaluate the patient for any skeletal asymmetry. A more prominent brow or brow bar on one side could actually be corrected with fat grafting um, or at least should be pointed out to the patient. Um, In addition, you should check for hairline or brow position asymmetry, whether high or low. And then you also need to check the brow shape. So patients typically report that they appear mad if the medial brow is lower or sad if the lateral brow is lower. And the arch of the brow should actually be at the intersection of the canthus and lateral limbus with bony show under the lateral portion. The medial brow should be at the level of the brow bar and not below it. And there should be no bony show below the medial brow as this could be a sign of a surprise appearance. In conjunction with upper um, lid laxity in the upper eyelid, you can actually correct the upper eyelid laxity if relatively modest using the endoscopic brow lift. However, if more substantial, patients may need an upper eyelid blepharoplasty. So if this is the case, you should actually perform the brow lift first and the blepharoplasty second to allow visualization of the new brow position. And then you can better determine how much eyelid tissue needs to be resected after that. If it's done in reverse, this can create an issue in regard to upper eyelid closure and skin shortage. Similarly, if you're doing a facelift, the brow lift should be done prior to help unfurl the lateral orbital laxity and make the facelift temporal skin excision more precise. And as always, you should make sure you get your photographic views. And usually five view photographic views can be obtained in the seated and upright position with no facial animation. Close-up view of the eye should also be obtained. um, These being closed, open, upward lateral gaze should be included with that. Now we will get into some of the specific details regarding preparation and technique. Morgan, do you mind going into preparation for this procedure?
0: Sure. So first, we're going to utilize a mixture of 30 cc's of 1% xylocaine with 10 cc's of TXA for local anesthesia in order to reduce bruising. So the patient is supine with endoscope at the foot of the bed, and the head should be above the level of the heart, usually 20 degrees, to help flatten veins. And when flat, the facial veins, including the superorbital and sentinel vein, are more prominent and more likely to bleed. So this is why we change that position. So you're going to place a mark within the hairline at the midline and the two lateral incisions, one on each side of the midline, and these are going to be six to seven centimeters lateral to the midline. Each incision should be about one centimeter posterior to the hairline, usually one centimeter in length. This can accommodate instruments adequately. Ideally, the lateral incisions are marked parallel and posterior to the temporal hairline on a vector line drawn from the ala through the lateral canthus extending into the hairline. Polly, can you tell us some more details about the technique?
2: Sure. Um, So there are different techniques used, but usually surgeons can employ anywhere from three to five incisions. Um, Incisions are made with a 15 blade in a Z or zigzag style. By avoiding a linear incision, the scar is less visible when the hairs come back, especially patients who have dark hair and fair skin where this can show. Um, The midline and paramedian uh, incisions actually go through all layers of the scalp down to the cranium. The temporal incisions you only carry to the superficial layer of the deep temporal fascia. So once you have major incisions, you can use a small elevator to elevate the periosteum over the forehead to approximately one centimeter over the orbital rim. It's helpful to elevate one to two centimeters as well posteriorly behind the incisions to allow mobilization of the forehead skin. You can then utilize the endoscope, which is typically a five millimeter, 30 degree rigid endoscope to visualize the subperiosteal dissection at the brow bar. And usually the supraorbital nerve exits beneath the brow bar where it's easily preserved. However, sometimes the nerve exits on the brow bar, and it's important to have good visualization and to preserve the nerve in these situations. After elevating the periosteum down to the orbital rim and preserving the supratrochlear and supraorbital nerves, you can extend this laterally over the lateral orbital rim to the level of the lateral canthus and release the arcus marginalis. As you discussed previously, Morgan, this complete release of the periosteum will allow for shifting of the brow skin cephalad. Now, laterally, um, through your lateral ports, you want to dissect the tissue plane between the tempoparietal fascia um, or the superficial temporal fascia and the temporalis fascia, the deep temporal fascia that overlies the temporalis muscle. You want to release the entire superficial temporal space anteriorly and posteriorly and inferiorly approximately one centimeter above the zygomatic arch. And it's important that you watch out for the facial nerve as it crosses the zygoma and also watch out for the sentinel vein which you do not want to cauterize. Here you can divide the zone of adhesion and the open conjoint tendon to complete the connection between the lateral and central dissection pockets. It's important to note, I think, that if the patient has prominent glabella furrowing, then the procerus and corrugator um, actually can undergo myotomies under direct visualization. You need to be careful that if you are going to resect muscle completely, that this can create potentially a static look with no motion. Also, aggressive release of the corrugators has the risk of widening the interbrow distance. In addition, if the lateral brow is low, you can also perform a small lateral obicularis oculi single or double myotomy along the lateral edge of the dissection over the bony orbital rim to help with this. Now, once you've done all of your dissection and releases um, and address the muscle, what are the options for fixation? Well, there are several different options for fixation that have been described. Here at ACPS, um, under Dr. Mentz, he usually prefers to use a transcutaneous screw. Um, And he prefers this because he found that the absorbable fixation devices tend to leave a palpable area that can last anywhere from two to three years. And typically you want to address your temporal ports first and then your paramedian and median ports. So you want to affix the tempoparietal fascia to the deep temporalis fascia in a vector that follows the line formed from the ala to the lateral canthus using usually a large permanent or a semi-permanent suture, such as a zero nylon or PDS. And you want to elevate the lower side first in the paramedian and median locations using a one millimeter drill with a five millimeter stop. The screws that are used are 1.1 millimeters and are usually left in for two weeks. Once you have elevated the lower side, then you can elevate the other side to match. And in general, approximately five millimeters of vertical relapse should be anticipated um, when doing this procedure. Some surgeons prefer to leave a drain while others do not. And if a drain is placed over the brow, Um, You can usually collect any blood that has accumulated from the myotomy and this does not have to be left very long, usually for an hour or so and can actually be removed in the recovery area. Incisions can be either closed with an interrupted suture or stapled and you can also consider a forehead wrap for light compression if needed.
1: That's awesome, Polly. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. We know that all procedures come with risks. Morgan, what are some of the potential complications from this procedure?
0: So in terms of complications, so the most common complication would be paresthesia or dysthesia, asymmetry, alopecia, lagophthalmos, or need for revision. And the most feared complication is a motor nerve injury to the frontal branch of the facial nerve, which is much less common. Other complications include edema, dehiscence, ocular problems, globular irregularity, granuloma, hematoma, infection, pain, palpability of implanted materials, pruritus, screw exposure, seroma, skin burn, and scar. So despite this, there is a high patient satisfaction with endoscopic brow lift and can help to restore a more youthful appearance in a minimally invasive fashion.
2: I totally agree with you, Morgan. I think that it's a great procedure that we can offer patients um, with a minimally invasive approach. I just want to thank you and Zane again for letting me help with this podcast. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Henry Mentz at the Aesthetic Center for Plastic Surgery for helping me put this together.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. This has been very educational for me. You know, I'm doing a facial rejuvenation on monday and i was taking notes you know what am i gonna do to make this better so um, i'm glad i had the opportunity to do this today with both of you and zane's been such a rock star through this whole time with the podcast helping us behind the scenes and with the previous episode and hopefully we can do this again
1: absolutely these are so much fun to record thank you guys both so much morgan and polly for all the great information on endoscopic brow lift To our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure and subscribe, rate, and review us. You can access all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. We will continue to bring you episodes on life and education and plastic surgery. And don't forget to stay in the loop.
0: All right. Thanks, guys.